0: Hello and welcome to We're Watching What, I'm your host Dana, or the DHK as I'm known, and lots of movies for you to choose from on this multi-holiday weekend. You've got Lunar New Year, you've got President's Day, you've got Valentine's Day. Some of them fit the theme, some of them not so much. Lots of choices to make. Should you make some of them? Potentially not, but without further ado, here's We're Watching What. First up is Judas and the Black Messiah, which is available now on HBO Max, and I am very confused as to why this movie was not sent out to critics earlier. As a part of For Your Consideration campaigns, it's possible that it went out to many and uh, you know every kind of voting group has their own different timelines but this film is much much better than a good portion of films I saw as a part of the awards process this season. It's based on the true story of an FBI informant played by Lakeith Stanfield who infiltrates the Illinois Black Panther Party and uh, you know it deals with uh, the chairman Fred Hampton who's played by Daniel Kaluuya who is just just spectacular in this This takes place around the same time frame as Trial of the Chicago 7, which came out in 2020, which got a lot of awards praise and is about a similar sort of political unrest, but this one feels much more pointed and so much more relevant to everything we're going through right now because it's dealing with black lives and systemic racial persecution and I'm just, I, you know, the performances were really strong. I'm glad that it's getting a release and obviously it is relevant to Black History Month, which is going on right now, but I'm I'm just sort of surprised as to why this didn't get more awards attention and I I feel like this also happened with Just Mercy which I don't think is as strong of a film Uh, but this same thing happened last year where Just Mercy came out just after the awards sort of window and and so I'm like why are these black lead films getting sort of swept under the rug a little bit but I'm glad that this is available for people to watch on HBO Max you absolutely should watch it Sometimes historical films can be very hard to watch and I think the thing I like the most about this is that it really and not that this doesn't happen with other films but it really humanizes Fred Hampton and I feel like in other portrayals I feel like there's often a villainization of the Black Panther Party because they were and are a radical you know but radicalness can affect change and I think the thing that stood out the most to me was and this is just more to do with the actual figure it involves is that Fred Hampton was in his late teens and very early 20s when he was at the height of his political activism and I want you to watch the movie and you'll see why that matters. I can't think of a reason, unless you're maybe a very young viewer, not to watch this film. It's very well acted, it's very well directed, it's it's well written, so you should absolutely check it out. I'm gonna give it 4.3 out of 5. And then next up I have a film that could not be further from Judas and the Black Messiah, and that is Barb and Star Go to Vista Del Mar. And it's written by and starring Kristen Wiig and Annie Mumlow, and they are the team who wrote Bridesmaids, so It's definitely in a similar vein to Bridesmaids, so if you liked that, this is close. It's just much more surreal and much more bizarre, which I personally really dug. I could absolutely tell how this is not going to be for everyone if you don't have a sort of surrealist sense of humor. This is not going to resonate with you, but I think their commitment to the bit is really what I appreciated. So Kristen Wiig and Annie Mumlow star as Barb and Star. They are just two Midwestern best friends who go on a vacation to Vista Del Mar in Florida and... This movie gets very, very weird. So the premise is the two of them go on a vacation. They go to this resort. They end up meeting Jamie Dornan's character. This is strangely the role I've liked Jamie Dornan in the most. I think he's also really good in the fall, but the rest of his acting, especially having seen the Irish movie with him late last year, was just, yeah, oof. But Jamie Dornan's character is sort of like a secret agent bad actor who's in the employ of an evil villain who wants to destroy Vista Del Mar for very bizarre reasons. The plot... you're not in this for the plot you're in this for the jokes and just some of the jokes I I just loved them and again I acknowledge that it's not going to be for everyone. But there's just something about the surrealness. And then also, you can tell that Kristen Wiig and Annie Mumlow have a genuine friendship out of it. And I think it's their dynamic that carries this thing through. They're not only playing best friends, but there are lots of improv-ish moments where uh, it reminds me of the skit with Kristen Wiig and Fred Armisen when they would go on like Weekend Update and they would sort of tell a story together. And obviously, it was improvised. And so they would try and say the same thing in synchronization. And it wouldn't always work out. But it was always just very fun. And the more awkward it got the more you ended up sometimes investing in it. That's what this movie is, but with the two of them. There's just a bunch of weird like asides and one-off jokes and things like that. Actually, not even one-off jokes. Things that just pay off so much later down the line that you almost forget about and then they bring them back at just the right time that I just, I really enjoyed it. I'm not going to apologize for that. But I also will acknowledge that other people will probably not enjoy it as much as I did. I think if you watch the trailer, you will get a general vibe of it. If you can tolerate their accents and their dynamic together in the trailer, I think you can watch this movie. If you watch the trailer and you go, absolutely not, this is terrible and I hate it, uh, you're not going to make it through more than 15 minutes of this movie. But I implore you to potentially give it a chance. I personally am going to give it 3.9 out of 5. I'm going to take a quick break and be right back and then I have To All the Boys Always and Forever which is the third in this To All the Boys I've Loved Before trilogy on Netflix it is hopefully the last one I feel like the source material has stretched itself too thin I found the first one cute and enjoyable at the time it was not you know my favorite romance etc whatever but I also was not and am not in the right age demographic for it I could absolutely imagine you know little baby preteen me being really just sort of excited by the idea of one the representation of it because I like that the characters are Korean-American and mixed, and two, it's a relatively formulaic rom-com. But as they tried to stretch this out, and also, I think it's worth noting that I think all three films take place over maybe one school year, maybe two school years at most, it's weird to have the amount of stuff happen in these films but also nothing happened in these films and their relationship like way too much happens in the course of their relationship the relationship between Lana Condor's character and Noah Centino's character Lara Jean and Peter it's just it's too much for a high school movie with the same characters like I think you can get away with it in the John Hughes type films where it's just one character per movie but dragging these two out over three movies just they needed to graduate and that's what they attempt to do in this film literally they go through high school graduation and it's all about trying to get into college and They're going to try and go to the same college, and I'm just like, dumb. They are dumb. And I think what upsets me about the second and third films in this is that more and more her character loses her kind of intelligence. And I don't know if this is the exact cause of this, but I will note that the franchise changed hands from a female director to a male director, and the writer is the same, so, you know, there's that. But I felt like by the time we got to the third one, it was just trying to rely on rom-com moments but not actually understanding the relationship dynamics between them and just sort of trying to mimic – these moments that they've seen in other films as opposed to trying to generate organic ones of their own. I was really bored by this film. I think the actors were trying their best and continued to try and be earnest with these performances but at a certain point it just feels a little tired. Also I don't like the idea of a modern young woman trying to make a decision for her education and what should be best for her long-reaching future for a man or for any other person in their life. That's something that should be really important to her and you know she should be just as empowered as he is encouraged to be in terms of making a decision for her own sake but her tethering to him is just It just felt out of place to me, and it's not something that I would inherently think the girl in the first movie would do, but she's supposed to be the same character in this movie, and this movie also became this weird ad for NYU, which I'm so tired of, and I think it's fair for me to say this as an alumni. NYU is this just manic pixie dream school for a lot of characters, and I'm like, it's not. They go to a college party at one point, and I was like, no party I ever went to looked anything like this. I don't think people realize how just not college E NYU was, at least for me. And things have changed a lot probably since I've been there, but we can we couldn't afford to do the things they did. It felt inauthentic is what it came down to for me, and I was tired of it. So I want to be able to support it from a diversity perspective, but at a certain point, as I've said many times before, the content with diverse casts still needs to be good. And they deserve and should be given better roles than this script provided. So I'm only gonna give this two and a half out of five. Thankfully to balance out the mediocre filmmaking of To All the Boys 3. We have the excellent filmmaking of Kathy Yan's Dead Pigs, which after I want to say three years is finally available for people to view in the States. It is available on MUBI. Kathy Yan directed Birds of Prey, ironically also an NYU graduate, and this takes place in China. I think it does a really good job of showing why she was tapped to direct Birds of Prey in that she does ensembles really, really well. And the event at the center of it is actually based on a true story where thousands of dead pigs were found floating in a river, and that That's sort of the centerpiece to bring together all these storylines. And it's just done in a really crafty and interesting way. And I think I actually had the chance to talk to her about the film a couple years ago. And I think she's dead on in that it's a really great representation of what it's like to be kind of an expat or other or on the verge of transformation in China at present. And I I think it still holds up. It's it's just a really interesting story. And I highly recommend you check it out because there's just a thoughtfulness. And again, I think ensembles are such a delicate thing because you have to balance so many characters and plot lines. But the most exciting thing is when they pay off and when they all converge properly, it's amazing. But that's also something that I think not as many people can pull off. So please, 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 if you can, check it out. I'm going to give it 4.5 out of that, that. has been it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed it, we would love it if you could leave us a rating or a review or even consider subscribing.